Welcome back to another episode of the 100K Freelancer Club podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Prerna and Mayank. We dive into their unexpected journey from corporate jobs to creating a consultancy and service agency, focusing on sales strategy, copywriting, and marketing for various businesses. You'll discover the importance of skill building, client acquisition strategies, and the evolution of their business model. They also share their insights on working together as partners, nurturing client relationships for repeat business, and the strategic use of social media to reach a global client base. Tune in for an enlightening conversation filled with practical advice for aspiring freelancers and entrepreneurs right here in today's episode. But before we dive into it, remember to hit that follow and subscribe button wherever you may be listening to this podcast. It really does help us out and we can continue to bring fantastic guests uh, for aspiring freelancers and entrepreneurs all around the world. So thanks for listening and thank you even more for subscribing. Let's jump into the podcast. Thank you for uh, joining me today uh, on the 100K Freelancer Club podcast. So this is the first time, actually, we've ever had uh, two guests uh, at the same time on one podcast. So, uh, so you're uh, you're trendsetters and record breakers. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll int- obviously we've got um, uh, we've got Prana and Mayank with us uh, today on the podcast. Um, and I'll hand the reins over to you quickly and just open with uh, uh, the most basic question ever. And it's that: How are you guys doing today? We are doing really well. Thank you so much for inviting us. Very excited to be here. Yeah, thanks. Again, thanks for coming on. I mean, I've been looking at um, your stuff across the social media uh, and across uh, your website and stuff. So you guys run uh, the Content Bistro. And uh, do you want to jump in and tell me uh, what is that all about? So what is it that you guys do? Sure. So we're a boutique consulting and service agency where we work with online educators, coaches, consultants, and uh, traditional businesses on their sales strategy, copywriting, and overall marketing. Um, And we've been now doing this for over 12 years, I would say. We started in 2011. So yeah, it's it's been a while. Yeah, 2011, that is a long time. It feels like just yesterday, but yeah, when you actually think about it, 2011 is a really, really long time. Yes. I mean, how did you, was this a planned thing? Because I've I've spoke to, to guests that were just sort of, you know, they were looking at new opportunities or they lost a job, for example, and they were thrown into making these kind of decisions into starting a business or becoming freelancers. Was this something that you were thinking about for a long time or was it just you evolved into uh, content bistro? So for us, no, it was not a planned thing at all. We basically fell into it. We had, uh, Mm -hmm. so both of us were in corporate jobs. I took a break from work when our daughter was born. Um, My aunt was still with, um, with Amex at the time. And what happened really was that he got really sick. And he was on bed rest for about a year. Um, And we took that year to basically, you know, and which meant that he had to take a break from work. So when he started getting better and healing and, you know, the time came for him to make a decision about going back to work, he's the one who actually came up with the idea. And he was like, you know, um, you've been doing, I I, just to kind of backtrack even more, I started doing uh, some very part-time blogging. I had a mom blog, which I started in 2008 when our daughter was born. And um, 2011, uh, you know, when he had to go back to work, he was like, how about we take this very part-time blogging thing and turn it into a full-time business? Like, how about we start doing it for other businesses? Because I did have like a few, you know, other bloggers reach out and say, okay, would you write a few articles for us? But it was extremely part-time at that at that point. So 2011 is when, you know, he was like, let's give it a year. Let's see how it goes. And then we can decide at the end of the year, you know, he said like, whether I've been away from the workforce for about a year or two years, it really wouldn't make that much of a difference. So we, we could actually, this would be a good time for us to test out running our own business. So yeah, that was 2011. And now here we are. (laughs) 
Nice. That's a that's a cool story. I think we, we I I hear that quite a lot. Is that some even like a trauma or something forces like a change in perspective and okay, okay, uh-huh. I don't want to go back to the way things were before. Let's try let's try mm-hmm. something new. And and when you when you were in that first year um of of the business, did you did you feel um, a sense of pressure and struggle that you really wanted to make it work and you didn't want to go back to that old way or or was it all excitement and all moving forward and all, all good things? I think it was more excitement uh, for us. Um, we used to look forward to Mondays. Um, not that we were ever really unhappy in our corporate jobs. We were really happy when um, I was working with American Express or, or Prana was working with them before that. Um, but yeah, I'd say the first year was pretty exciting, uh, learning new things, trying those out for ourselves, for our clients. Um, luckily, we got great results and moved from strength to strength. And at pretty much at the end of the first year, we saw that we had replaced uh, the income that was coming from the corporate job with this business. And we knew now this has to be full time and um um, we had to go in all guns blazing. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that, that's awesome that that worked out for you as well, and that you've like you sort of like found that passion for it, and you know you you weren't hating the job before, which, which what that's kind of what drives a lot of people into the freelancing world, into the entrepreneurship world. They're like sick of their job, they want to change, they want that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but as well, I guess that would have been harder in a way because you didn't have that driving force behind you of like, I really can't go back to this. It was more just the, you know, having the the self discipline to be like, okay, this is something cool, and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, you know, a hundred percent. And it, you know, it turned out into something uh, something amazing. And then moving on to like uh, a, a second question on that front. So, how was it working together? as as partners was was that something that came as a shock is first and does it, it does that remain difficult to this day was it difficult uh i no not really honestly not really uh i wouldn't say it was difficult it it's not it's not wasn't difficult why because we actually had always kind of worked together even in corporate that's pretty much how we met as well we met while working together um but Obviously, working together in your business is a very different thing than working together at a workplace, right? Because you have different responsibilities, you're reporting to different people. It's it's very, very different. However, having said that, I will say there is a lot of learning to do. Mm. And um, you need to kind of like almost go the extra mile in order to understand each other better, in order to understand your working styles in order to understand your personalities and also to have a clear, you know, almost division of roles and responsibilities. So, you know, you should know like certain things are are his zone of genius and certain things are mine. And while we do discuss, uh, you know, what's going on in that, like, for instance, writing copy is my zone of genius, um, growth, consulting, strategy, um, a lot of that is his zone of genius so we'll consult with each other but then you know um yeah like he'll read the copy but then the final decision of what to do with the copy is mine um he would give me his feedback but then whether i use that feedback or not that final decision lies with me so yeah so there's like specific defined roles within the business so you're treating the business as like a separate entity and then you guys are sort of like fulfilling your specific roles inside that and sort of like that removes any sort of potential conflict that could come up right it does and and i think what's really important is to have that level of confidence in each other's abilities so as as a copywriter i have 100 percent confident in prerna's ability so like she said um, if I were to read a piece of copy as a third person, I'd give feedback, but whatever is the final decision comes from her, I'm absolutely comfortable with that. Uh, when it comes to growth strategy or numbers, uh, Prerna knows that that is my zone of genius, so she trusts me on that. If if we are ever, ta- ever taking a decision, which is, say, uh, 
not par for the course. Mm. So I think confidence in each other's abilities and also not putting a lot of pressure on each other just because your spouse is working in the business. You could have somebody else as your business partner. You would still want to have confidence. You'd still want to have boundaries. You'd still want to respect their point of views. Um, mm. It's the same thing when, when you're life partners. So, so yeah. The other yeah. thing that's also really important is to remember that, yes, uh, which when you are both life and business partners is that um, just like you divide roles and responsibilities in the business, you also want to do that for the life side of things. So because then both of you are working in the business, but both of you are also lifing it out uh, together. Mm -hmm. So you need to have like that, you know, clear understanding of who does what and just kind of, again, trust the person to do it instead of thinking, okay, if it's, you know, I need to do everything. Like no, one person does not have to do all of the things in all of the places at, you know, like all of the time. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you from, from that standpoint. Trust is super essential. And even if you're not working with a partner, even if you're just working with other freelancers or friends, it's having that ability to trust people is going to get you a long way. And just get, having good people in your circle to be able to trust as well takes that mental load off you. Because if you've given someone a task, and all you're doing is worrying about how they're doing it. You're checking up with them all the time. That's taking up your mental space and it's yeah. going yeah. to affect your performance um, as well. That is, that's actually something that I really, at the start of my career, I really struggled with that because I was always working with friends. So I've always been in business and always been in freelancing ever since even in university and ever since I left university. And my go-to was always to employ friends. Hmm. And I was always working with friends, always employing friends. and I just did not have that level of trust there with them that they could get this done and do it. And I was always micromanaging and that always caused frictions in the friendship as well, mm -hmm. because I think maybe as well for this, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think it's also important to be able to accept that mistakes are going to happen and everybody in the world is going to make mistakes. So you can't be mad at somebody on a personal level for a mistake they make in a work environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and now just with us, we also have a team of contractors that we work with. And so, with some of the contractors, it's more like, of like a long-term relationship. We've been working for a few years with them and it's it just extends into every area. So yes, mistakes will happen. Human, It's a human thing. And what you need to look at and realize is, is it a one-off mistake? Is it a recurring pattern? Is there something else that needs to be addressed and it's not you know sometimes it's not like a skill thing it's a will thing sometimes it may be a skill thing which is like an easy fix so a lot of that like the whole people management side of things comes into play once you start working not you may not be working with you know your partner but you start working with other people which is which is crucial if you're looking to if you're looking to grow if you're looking to offer more to your clients hmm yeah, exactly. And does do you ever with with the money side of things? Do you ever feel that sense of um, I don't know if I call it like greed, but let's just say one of you is working particularly hard one month, and even if it comes down to like achievements, so like okay, I landed this big client that paid us this money. I did seventy five percent of the work on that, and now we're you know splitting that money down the middle. How do you manage like? Do, do those, first of all, I don't want to cause an argument, but do any of those thoughts crop into your mind? And second of all, if they do, how how do you deal with them? Is there like a, like an official contract in place between you, or is there just that level uh, of trust? Oh gosh, there's there's no contract. Um, as as far as money is concerned, all the money for us is together, mm. so we we don't really split it uh, that ways. Uh, so. All of that goes into a joint account, which both me and Prayna are, are part of. Um, I think we sort of realize that there are different tasks in business. It's not purely the amount of time that goes into it. So if somebody's spending 60% or 70% of the time, doesn't mean the other 30% is not as important. Sometimes the 20% of the 30% could be more crucial. Um, mm. And I think it just goes back to respecting uh, whatever the other person brings to the table and work as a team, 
I think if you start looking at who's contributing more, um, mm. what activities are revenue generating, what activities <clears throat> are building the brand or helping with marketing, uh, then I think the lines get a little blurred and it could uh, lead to conflict later. So we like to keep it simple. We, we understand each other's strengths, uh, respect that, and we see the business as a whole. Mm. So we understand that if one of us would not be there, it would be a major impact to the business. We'll have to get somebody from outside to replace that role. And um, at least we see each other's roles as equally important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Because, I mean, I, I had one situation um, a couple of years ago where I was working with a friend and we had a 50-50 situation. And there was there was times where, you know, I would get a couple of big clients in. I would do the majority of the work on there. And I was thinking to myself, like, what the hell? And I've done so many more hours. I've done this, that, and the other. Like, I deserve way more than 50%. And it, like, caused, like, disruption, like, in the actual working relationship. But that person as well actually taught me what you've just said there is it's not necessarily the number of hours you've put in. Because our working hours don't equate to value. You could be really slow, unproductive some hours. Some people just like to be, you know, they like... They feel that sense of value and fulfillment by putting the time in. So they might sit behind a desk for 12 hours working away, but they're not necessarily yeah. that productive. Um, and other, other person could get, you know, achieve what they've achieved in, in, in four hours. And there's a multitude of different factors. In the end, it came down to like, you know, this in this particular scenario for me, this person had encouraged me to charge more for the those deals. Um, they'd implemented certain things that made things more efficient. So when you think about yeah. it, like on in in a more thought out way it was like okay yeah actually i wouldn't have even earned that much from this project if it wasn't for this person so it's like loads of different things and and that opened up my mind to okay like we go into things 50 50 i have to trust that person 100 percent. and i think a lot of people even if they're not working with their partners they can learn a lot from from you from just working with people that they have a relationship with whether that's friendship whether that is um you know yeah. their spouse so, so that's why i've been picking your brains uh, about this because there's something that i'm personally interested in and have been struggling with in uh in the past um but yeah it's, it's amazing um I i'll switch over to the client acquisition side of things because that is a hot topic mm -hmm. in freelancing in business mm -hmm. um obviously it has changed massively over the last couple of years but now today in 2023 how do you go about reaching out getting and landing new clients to increase that revenue inside your business so client acquisition essentially you could divide it into i would say just like your freelancer journey you would want to divide it into three phases so there's client acquisition when you're starting out then there's client acquisition once you've got like a few projects under your belt and then there's client acquisition once you've been around for a while like we have like maybe like five years seven years or like, as in our case over a decade right a client acquisition for us at this stage looks very very different from what it did when we started you know back in 2011 when literally no one knew us and um, to top it all you know top it off uh we live in india so there's there's that as well it's not like oh we can just you know if you're wanting to work with businesses say in in the us you can't just hop on a plane and go attend an event or a conference so it is very different for us then it's very different for us now so i'm just going to go real quick over some of the strategies that work for us when we started for anyone who's listening in who's probably at like the starting stage and is wondering okay but where do i even find clients when i haven't done any projects right um so one of the most effective strategies for us uh Keeping in mind the fact that, you know, we weren't local, but we were looking to work with the U.S. market um, was cold pitching. But cold pitching with a twist, what we like to call warm email prospecting, which is essentially you take the time to get to know a business, see how you could best help them. And then you reach out via email and make a pitch. And right now, like with the tools you have at your disposal, like we did not have that when we were starting out. Like this is, remember, like this is like... It was what, like 2011, like blogs got blogs and, you know, it was like a whole different world then. So right now you have Loom videos that you could make for a client that you're reaching out to and, you know, put a face to the name. So it's not like you're a stranger. You have tools that you can use to kind of 
put together your lead gen lists and your emails and all of that. And then you have AI that you can use to, you know, come up with um, whole email scripts that are, that sound well, you know, confident and optimize the scripts that you have. So use the tools at your disposal, but warm email prospecting is a really great way to start off if you are brand new, have zero connections online. If you have a, if you've been online for a while and you have like a network of some sort, like even if you have like say an Instagram profile or a Facebook personal profile with like friends and, you know, family, leverage that. Let people know what it is that you do. Let them know what you, you know, specialize in. And to send business your way, um, set up a referral program if needed. So that's the other thing that we're well for is to let people in our network know. Because remember, I'd been blogging for a while before we went into business. So I did have a healthy network of mom bloggers like myself. And those were, that's, you know, reaching out to them and letting them know that, hey, we're doing this full time. Um, would appreciate any business you send our way. Um, led to us getting some of our initial gigs. And third, and most importantly, when you're starting out, you want to make sure your skills are super strong because the moment you land that first client, that's your chance to really blow things out of the water for them and turn them into a repeat client and turn them into a client who sends referrals your way. Like you want your clients to go online and say, hey, you know, I have a great social media manager or I have a great copywriter or I have a great, you know, content creator for your blog uh, posts and newsletters that I would love to you know, share with you all. So let me know. So we, that's what we did. We really, and even today, we really invest in, in our skills, in learning, in just kind of staying relevant and on top of what's, what's happening in the industry, because, and you know, this Jacob, like things change so fast in the freelancing world. So mm. really important for you to build your skill set, be really, really good. So, and have like think about the client experience. Even before you land that first client, think about your client experience. What is it that, how is it that you're going to onboard them? What happens once they sign that contract? And yes, you've celebrated, but what happens next? So, you know, you don't want to just sign them on and then completely freak out. Like, okay, now, now what do I do? That's not the time to be asking in groups and forums about, you know, oh, what um, I've been hired to write um, an email sequence. Where do I start? No, all of that should have happened way before. So use that time to build your. So this is when you're like kind of starting out. Um, and I would say that once you've got like projects under your belt and you've, you know, right now for us, for example, referrals are our biggest source and so are repeat clients. Like we work with the same client on multiple projects. So just to give you some numbers, about 65% of our client base has come through referrals. Mm. So two thirds of the client base of the work that we have is coming through referrals from past clients. 91% of our clients have at least done two or more projects with mm. us. So we only have about eight to 9% clients who only do one-off projects or one-off consulting gigs. 91% come back for repeat projects, what, what Prana was talking about. So they do a minimum of group projects. Sometimes we have clients uh, who've done six, eight, ten projects with us. So, so the lifetime value of a client increases so much that client acquisition then is not such a big problem uh, for the business on a monthly basis. Yeah, that's a really good point because I don't think a lot of beginner freelancers actually think about lifetime value. They just think of that initial paycheck that they're going to get for doing a project. And obviously lifetime value, like you said, they're most of your clients, like 90 plus percent do a second project with you. And I think I'm probably in a similar sort of like range as you where pretty much all of my clients will do some form of continuous work or repeat work with me. Because, you know, if you're good at the skill, like you said, once you sort of like blow that out of the park, they're going to want more. Because think about it from the other way around. If you're a business and you find somebody that does exceptional work, why would you want to yep. let them go? Because in exactly. business, what, what people don't understand on like the freelancer side is that it is so hard to find good people. But once you find good people that are a good match for the company, they have the skill level that is required or even exceed that skill level. It is you just want to hold on to that person. So 
nurturing that relationship with the client to get that repeat business um, in order to increase the lifetime value of that client is so essential to becoming a successful freelancer uh, or a successful business. I mean, have you got any tips or tricks on how to actually, you know, nurture clients and sort of make sure that you get repeat business from clients? Yes, absolutely. So one of the first things you want to do is, of course, ensure that your onboarding and your and subsequently your offboarding processes and procedures are all in place. So you, once a client signs up, like that is when. So we all and as a copywriter, and I'm sure as a freelancer, Jacob, you know, like we all know about buyer's remorse. You do not want buyer's remorse to kick in and, you know, for them to go, OK, I've just paid like five grand to this, you know, designer and now. They're sitting and waiting. You want everything to flow smoothly. They need to know when, what happens, what are the next steps. So your onboarding needs to be really, really great. You need to be really on top of your, during the project communication as well. Like keep them informed. Ideally, like what we do is we have an end of the week email that goes out to our clients, letting them know what happened that week. So for instance, you know, if it's in the research phase, it is easy to just go quiet and just do your research, right? But mm. If you inform them that, hey, you know, this week, you know, um, we've been going through the survey responses or we've been combing through your forms or we, you know, are working through analyzing the testimonial data or going through the course content and just distilling our findings. And by this time next week, you will have, you know, all of this compiled into your messaging recommendations report. They know what's happening. So they feel that they're part of a project. So just have solid onboarding, offboarding processes. Similarly, once you offboard a client, that needs that's a whole process, too, that you need to have and completely sorted. The other thing that you want to do is that once a project is over, it's not really over because the relationship is still intact. So you may have finished a project, but your relationship with the client is still there. So you want to keep that in mind and you want to stay connected. It's really, uh, as you know, um, as folks who also employ, uh, you know, freelancers for various uh, roles and responsibilities, we often find that once a project's finished, uh, a particular freelancer would often just fall off our radar and we won't hear from them. We won't see them on social, whereas till that point, you know, while they're working with us, they're like engaging with us on social or they're, you know, of course, because we're working on the project, the communications more often. and. It's a little sad because what happens is, like you said, you know, if you've had a good experience, you would want to kind of recommend that freelancer to other people. Or you may have another project come up that you may want to hire them for. But what happens is when they just fall off the radar like that, it's easy for us to forget, you know, um, their website details or to just kind of completely blank sometimes on the name as well. So it's really important for you to kind of keep that relationship with them alive and you know with your clients alive and just stay connected with them especially if it's been a great experience working with them yeah it also um, looks good as well right like if the freelancer's pushing you so like hey you know uh just checking in uh i could do this 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 and this for you or like if you've got this project i can do it yep. and it shows that they're proactive and you're like yeah okay let, let me try and find something for you yeah yeah absolutely and doesn't feel transactional it feels like there's a there's a genuine connection uh, between the businesses. So, so that's also really important. So, so yes, so you want to stay in, stay in connect, stay connected to your former clients. You want to stay, you know, top of mind with them. Also, the other thing during a project with your clients, what you want to do is you want to take ownership for the project. You don't want to be someone that they need to micromanage or, you know, check in with. This kind of ties in with the communication thing, but also ties in with the fact that you want to show up more as a part of a team as against a, you know, an independent contractor who's just working on something by themselves. Like in our case, for example, we work a lot on, you know, um, evergreen funnels and live launches, which are fairly intense and there are multiple people involved. It's very easy for us to say, okay, yeah, we'll do our email sequence or we'll do the sales page and then call it a day. But what we do is we check in, like during a live launch, for example, all our assets are gone. Both of us would stay connected with the client to find out, okay, how's the launch going? what's happening we they don't hire you know even if they've not hired us to be their launch strategist does not mean that we would just step away and say okay we're not going to you know be a part of the launch now that our job is done and we've been paid 
This is a little tricky for some freelancers because it can quickly morph into scope creep or it can morph into, you know, blurring of boundaries. So you still need to have boundaries in, in the sense, for instance, if someone needs during a launch, they want to, you know, get on multiple calls with you to um, review certain assets or that you have had nothing to do with. In that case, you may want to see whether you let them know that, hey, you know, happy to do that, happy to make the time for it and happy to charge, say, X amount for it. So you want to set your own boundaries there for us. You know, we have that set internally. We know, you know, we want to be part of a team, but at the same time, we don't want to just do, you know, endless amount of work without charging adequately for it. So that's, again, something that to keep in mind. But yes, participating in projects as part of a team is always a good sign and always helps, you know, your co-contractors on a project to see you as someone that they can then, you know, partner with on a future project, which in, in our case has happened often, you know, a designer that we worked with on one project or a launch or a fractional CMO that we worked with on another project, you know, would come back to us and say, hey, you know, I had a good time working with you on so-and-so's project. Are you taking on clients? So it just kind of expands your, you know, referral network as well. Exactly. And and taking an interest in the client and like you use the example of like showing up for their launch there. It's like you're expressing an interest in their business and the well-being of the business. And, and that's something that, you know, employees in businesses are looking for, people that care about the success of the business. They're not just there to show up and get paid and leave. They're sort of yeah. joining mm -hmm. in in the successes of the business. So, yeah, that is that's another uh, really important um, fact that you pulled up there as well that I like a lot. And then the next thing was when you're talking about an onboarding process, I just want to dive into that, uh, an offboarding process, sorry. Uh, I just want to dive into that a bit more because that's something I don't see a lot of freelancers do is have a really thought out or systemized offboarding process. What does an offboarding process look like for you guys? So our offboarding process starts somewhere around the point of like 70% of the project completion, because we are like, you know, towards the end of the project. So it's not just saying, okay, work's done. Here's the link to your folder. It has the files, you know, thank you. And that's it. So around the 70% mark, we usually send them an email saying, hey, you know, we're approaching the pointy end of our project. It's been really great working for you. Wanted to let you know that we're currently booking for whatever next we are booking, you know, um, we let them know that. And if you've got anything coming up and you'd like us to be a part of it, we'd love to chat with you. So that again is a great way for you to get those repeat projects that, you know, we've been, we've been talking about. Um, the next email then kind of goes out around the 90% mark in which we again, let them know that, you know, all final edits are being made, uh, files are with the design, especially because with sales pages and opt-in pages are, we also get them wireframed uh, so that it's easy for them to kind of, you know, go ahead and uh, give it, hand it off to their design team. So we let them know that the files are with our designer, she's prepping the wireframes. Um, wanted to take a quick minute to, you know, ask you if you knew anyone who would be interested, you know, so then we ask for a referral there. And then finally, when the project is completed, we let them know about the fact that, you know, where, how long will their Notion, because we use Notion for client um, management, we let them know their Notion portal is going to stay, um, you know, online and accessible for the next 30 odd days. We, and they're free to download whatever they need from it, any recordings, any transcripts, any data. They We have a shared Google Drive folder. I let them know that they're free to remove me from it. If I'm in their Slack or, you know, if we are um, anywhere in their team communication channels, we let them know that, you know, you could go ahead and remove us from there. We again remind them about referrals and then we also ask them for a testimonial. Um, about if it's an if it's a launch, we do stay connected with them through the launch. We let them know that we'd like to stay in Slack or in Asana or wherever they are or wherever they're communicating with us um, and be a part of the whole launch process. If it's an evergreen funnel, we let them know that Jen from our team who's our VA will reach out to them about 60 days or and then 90 days after the funnel's been deployed so we can assess how it's performing. So again, we aren't just, okay, yeah, here's your evergreen funnel. Thank you so much. We want to know how is it doing? What's the scope for optimization? So at every point, 
they know. And then what we, for our uh, business, what we've done is we've asked for referrals, we've asked for testimonials, and we've asked them if they've got something else coming up. So there've been like multiple touch points through the whole process. And that's what our offboarding process looks like in a nutshell. Yeah. And also the optimization that, that Prina talked about. So that's part of our packages. Mm. So when we touch base 60 or 90 days uh, from the time it was deployed and we see something needs to be tweaked or changed, uh, that's all part of the package. So so brings in a, a higher degree of accountability and ownership, uh, which generally the clients really like. Yeah, I think a lot of clients like that because you, if, if you're sticking sort of like your neck out to say like, okay, we are going to like be accountable mm -hmm. 60 days, 90 days down the road in this funnel, it's, you know, you're not giving that impression that you're just going to design, leave and run away with the money because yep. there's kind of, there's an, for clients as well in, in, in funnels, digital marketing, you know, online course launches, there is an element of risk as to where they could lose money. So the more secure that you can make them feel is definitely going to help in your ability to actually land that client in the first place. Um, and to, uh, and to, yeah, build like a, a long-term relationship with that client. I mean, I've been working with a few people in the past and I don't know how you feel about this, but they offer almost guarantees around timeframes of funnels. So they say, okay, like it, we're going to offer you a, 60 day marketing funnel and if that doesn't work for you if it's not profitable on the 60th day uh we'll then go ahead and do um, another funnel for you for free or something like that how how do you feel about these kind of offers in the business world is that something that you would ever do or do you think it's kind of a dangerous area to get into it kind of also depends on you know where how how are you positioned and you know what are what are you backing your results with? So in our case, we don't make those kind of promises where you know, we're like, oh, if it doesn't perform. The reason is one, before we even sign on a client, we have a fairly detailed discussion about where is their business at? Are they even in a position to be going, you know, evergreen, ordering a live launch? Have they tested and validated their offer? Their, uh, you know, what kind of an audience do they have? What are their audience growth strategies? So we want to know everything before they invest with us. We do offer optimization. We don't offer complete funnel makeovers. We offer optimization like Magnusing as part of a package. So we would look at, say, because we want, and also whether they would have the capability to implement things like heat maps and, you know, getting all of the data to us in place. So we have, so we can like look at the data, see the analytics, see what, you know, everything's telling us about what's not working before we go ahead and, and optimize. We have very rarely had to optimize large parts of the funnel. And that again, ties into our process because not only are we very, very particular about who we work with and they should be in a position with an offer that we know we would be able to help amplify sales for, we also, you know, um, have a fairly detailed process when it comes to actually strategizing for them and writing their copy. So it involves extensive research in understanding audience, understanding the offer, optimizing the offer. We work on offer optimization with them before, you know, even writing a single word of copy and offer optimization goes in deep. We look at like nine, 10 different parameters. We help them with everything from positioning, pricing, bonuses, launch mechanisms, the whole work, and then kind of then getting started with putting the copy together and thinking about, you know, what what angles to take and how to approach um, the funnel or this, even this, even if it's just a sales page, how do you approach the hierarchy of the sales page so that it makes complete sense to their audience, which is one reason why we've never really had anyone say, okay, you know, funnel's not completely working or anything of the sort. And our results are really, really good for clients in pretty much all niches from astrology to homesteading. Um, we've had um, a lot of success. So, Long answer to say, no, we would not give a guarantee where we would say, okay, yeah, 60 day, try the funnel. And then if it doesn't work for you, we'll do a whole new funnel. There's a lot of groundwork that goes into assessing and establishing your funnel in the first place. Why would you want to go through the whole hassle again? 
Yeah, you exactly. Have, it's not fair to the client, right? Like, imagine having to start from scratch after 60 or 90 days. Like, as a client, like, that's, yeah, that's horrible. Why would you want to put someone through that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've seen people doing that and I, I, I agree with you because I, I think it does as well come down to certain variables Like you shouldn't be taking on clients that there's a high or like there's a high chance that you're not going to be able to get results for them and you should mm -hmm. definitely be looking at, like at clients that you know that you can get results for and that you know they have a proven track record because there's like there's two kinds of businesses there's there's businesses that have some sort of data and have proved that they have a product or service that people want and then there's brand new businesses that don't have any data they've never made a single sale and those clients are risky because there's no evidence that the product works unless it's something that you know it's a service that you would personally buy or want in uk okay this is a new product i love it i love the idea i would buy that it's kind of difficult to you know step into that business uh, and, and and make that work and i i was in this a situation a couple of years ago where I was offering um, results based marketing packages where I would only take um, a percentage uh, of the sales that we generated. And I found a number of issues with that is one is that the type of clients that would actually come to you um, are the cheap clients um, that don't have a lot of budget, that don't have a lot to spend. And, and that raised a number of problems. I remember a problem that I had was um, we were doing uh, deals over sort of like the Black Friday period a couple of years ago where it was percentage only. And we'd put a lot of effort into one particular client and they'd promised us that they had, you know, we've got like 20,000 units and after like 600 units, they were sold out. So we sold out a couple of hours into um, into like the sale period, which sounds hmm. fantastic on paper for us. Like, oh, we were able to sell out this product in two hours, but actually we're on a percentage deal. There's not enough product there yep. for us to actually make any money. Um, so that, so working on these kind of deals, you do have to be really careful as to like who you work with. You do need to do a lot of research like uh, on, on the client. So yeah, finding, finding the right clients uh, is definitely essential. I think for, People in that beginning stage of freelance freelancing or entrepreneurship, they kind of, I think, they think that like, I just need a client. I need somebody to pay me and they'll sort of, they'll take on any work that they can. And then that snowballs into a bunch of bad clients that are like working them um, like crazy and not paying them, uh, not paying them the optimum. Like, did you, did you find yourself ever in that point when you started the business? Were there... Were there clients that were coming to you that weren't paying you as much as you wanted to or needed to be paid and sort of overworking you? And did you have to start dropping clients in order to take on better clients? Hmm. I wouldn't say that we had clients where we had, where they would make us work a lot. And then we had to like kind of quote unquote as it goes in the freelancer world, fire a client. Wasn't like that. What we mm. did realize was that we we got booked solid really fast and we were working a lot of hours with a lot of clients. So um, that is when we realized we need to kind of restructure the way our services and, uh, you know, were packaged and restructure the way we worked with clients. Um, but yeah, do you remember? Because it's been such a while. I don't think we had any client where we were we felt overworked and underpaid uh, yeah because initially obviously our pricing was pretty competitive because the focus was to get more client work to get testimonials but i think about four years into business we started to feel really burnt out because we were doing 45 50 hours a week a piece mm -hmm. uh, because it's two of us in the business and that's when we realized that if we didn't want to go the agency route and at that time, our focus was more on content and social media and not so much copywriting and consulting. So, so that's when we realized that if we don't want to go the agency route and don't want to do so many hours, we need to pivot mm. into something that's going to give us better ROI. So, so that's how the whole pivot into copywriting, uh, consulting, creating programs, all of that happened. Um, but yeah, we, we never really had a situation where where a, a client um, 
I mean, we had boundary issues or, or we yeah. felt we weren't paid uh, properly. No, yeah. not really. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that, that's a, a good situation to be in. I guess it comes down to as well, like the, the service that you're in uh, too, because I think freelancers that work more in sort of like video editing or graphic design, where there could be potentially an unlimited number of edits until the client is happy, yes. they really yes. struggle um, with, with, with this kind of thing. So, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that you say you didn't want to go the agency route because I, I think what a lot of freelancers like is they they get a couple of clients on board they start to sort of max out their personal time and then they'll be like okay i'm i'm busy i can turn this into an agency i can turn this into a business and everybody thinks it's this really easy way to scale and make money but from personal experience it definitely is not it is a lot of hard work it can make you a lot of money but it's still a lot of hard work so what what, what was your sort of opinions on going that agency route and sort of expanding getting more people in permanently and growing your team like why is there or did you make a decision against that i think it goes back to the point jacob that you were making earlier uh, in in this discussion is to getting the right people and retaining them uh, in the freelancer world is a challenge of its own. Um, so we didn't really want to be in a situation where basically both of us were just getting clients and marketing. And then for execution, we were totally dependent on a team. Yeah. And um, then you're looking at hiring, retaining them. So it just didn't feel exciting enough for us. Um, also, I think very early, we sort of realized that the margins are very different. So... Um, so broadly speaking, if an agency were to do, say, about a million dollars, um, after paying everyone, looking at the marketing overheads, paying uh, salary to the to the people working in it, uh, <clears throat> what you would retain is what you could retain as a freelancer if you were making 250 or 300K. So that model felt leaner, easier for us to grow with, um, had less risk at the time. Um, so that's what we looked at, even if we grew at 20, 30% every year felt really good, uh, because we had very low overheads, um, and not a lot of varial aspects because it was just the two of us and we had contractors that we were working with. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that we, we consider ourselves like a micro agency. Why? Because we do work with contractors, but we do not have, you know, um, full-time employees at this point in time. Initially we did, when we did. Uh, hire someone and it was editing. The other reason was uh, for us not going down the agency route is like both of us really love what we're doing, like responsibility wise. And if we just were responsible for say, say the marketing, like client acquisition thing, it would get, you know, really boring, really fast for us. Uh, client acquisition is part of what we do is, is exciting. But for me, for instance, like I, I love writing. I love writing. I would write if I was writing and not getting paid for it when I started in any case as a blogger, right? So I, it's something that I would even do for free. So for me, um, it's something that I really, really enjoy. And, and also I am shockingly fast at it, even <laughs> um, the, despite the fact that we don't use AI for content creation or copywriting, we use it for other parts of our workflow. Point is that writing for me is is fast it's you know fun it just lights me up so it made no sense for us to hire other writers we did hire contractors as and when needed for different projects whether it was you know say assisting us with research or design or editing or you know um what else social media management for example <laughs> so um it just kind of feels way easier for us to you know grow in a way that's um that's yeah, that's good for us and um, continues to excite us even, you know, 12 years down the line. Yeah, because you still get to work on the exciting aspects of the business. And like you say, the, the things that you actually love to do, like the writing part, yeah. I can, when yeah. when you make that decision as to turn into an agency or to turn into or to decide to grow the business with more people, you then become HR, you become managers. And that is yep. that is the bit that is a nightmare, speaking from personal <laughs> experience there as well. It, it's just, you know, the hiring process, the retaining process, the exactly. managing people's holidays and sick days and, and er everything just starts to get way more complicated and you feel like you don't enjoy 
doing what you're doing anymore. You might be a fantastic graphic designer that loves designing and you just live to design. You think that, okay, I want to make a lot more money, so I need to turn this into a full business. You start mm -hmm. to hire people and then two months down the line, the last time you did a design was a couple of weeks ago and all you've been doing is managing spreadsheets, timesheets, hiring, this person's off sick and you need to find a replacement contractor for that person while they're away. You're doing timesheets, you know, Suzanne wants to take a month off in summer to go to Istanbul. And it's like, this is all these crazy things that are going on all the time. And uh, yeah, so I do, that, that, that's why I'm a massive advocate of freelancing because you get to live that life that you want. The yeah. earning potential is still massive because your overheads are so low. Um, yeah. And you, you get to do the work that you want to do. You're in control of your life. You're in control of your work. You're in control of where you want to be. And I think, you know, you guys as well, a fantastic example of, you know, being in India, working, working there, you've, you've accessed, I, I guess, the entire world um, yes. of like, of clients. And I, I'm in a, I'm in a similar, um, well, I think I, I'll go ahead and say this and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm in quite a similar situation to you where I've moved to somewhere in Spain, which is, is it, it's relatively cheap compared to the places where I'm charging. So charging clients in America, Canada, the rest of Europe and England um, is it, allowed me to sort of live like a really nice lifestyle because I'm getting, you know, clients that are usually used to paying these massive rates of you know where where i am now and i i think it's it's been a massive benefit to me in terms of you know i'm, I'm getting these higher payments and my living costs are so low compared to other people that because i, I went to new york a couple of weeks ago and like the average rent there is like 5.5k a month and i was like you know maybe maybe i'm not making as much money as i think i am because if i'm paying 5.5 rents like 1k <laughs> like but being able to take advantage of that difference because i guess it's not at the end of the day it's not how much money you make it's how much money you keep um exactly so I think, yeah so um I, I guess as well is that one of the reasons why you decided to target the american market to target different markets was to you know get these clients that were able to pay bigger sums of money or are used to paying bigger sums of money not really um so let me just go and give some context here. so like I said, when we started, I'd been blogging for a while and I'd like kind of built this network of bomb bloggers and like, you know, people had like a fairly active presence on Twitter and things like that. And as it happened, there were very few bloggers in India at that point in time. There were very, like, it was really new, like very few. So our entire social circle online was based in the US. So it was just natural for us when, and you know, the, when the blog started ranking in Google search and all, all our readers were from the from the US uh, or from Canada or Australia, you know. And um, so when we started our business, by then we did, you know, like we reached out to fellow mom bloggers, everyone's in the US, right? It just kind of, it was very natural, very organic. There was no real quote unquote strategy behind it. Mm -hmm. The second reason also was partly because, like I said, it was, this was 2011, very few people like knew what, you know, digital marketing or online marketing was um or business blogging was um in the indian market too so you know but people overseas had more awareness there was you know people still knew like oh yeah i need a facebook page or i need a business blog so it was you know it just made more sense to instead of spending time educating customers on why they need something go to the customers who already know that they need this and they can see you as someone who will be able to give them that service. So there was no real like, oh, you know, it's going to be a market that would pay us what we want or, you know, that can, no, that wasn't there. It was just these two factors. Um, it was organic and it was very, you know, it just made business sense to go to an audience that's already problem aware in copywriting terms as against, you know, an unaware audience. So it was, yeah, it was a, purely like you know it kind of just came about quite naturally yeah so it just evolved uh yeah. it just evolved that way naturally yeah oh that's cool that's cool i think yeah I, I was kind of similar just i guess it could reach the point for me where it's like most of the clients that can afford my um or there are more clients that can afford my services in different countries to the one i'm in so i don't have uh, i don't really have much of a client base 
in Spain, uh, even though mm -hmm. I am there. And yeah, just kind of as well evolved naturally like that. Do you think that um, that social media nowadays and, and social media marketing is is helped people reach out to international clients without even realizing like because you can put out i've seen i've seen like almost these like viral graphic designers where they post like graphic design trends on their page and they're going massive they must be getting clients from you know all over the world just because of, of that reach there is that something that you guys do on your social pages are you ever surprised of like who reaches out to you and from where just based on the reach that you have from this amazing tool that's now at your disposal 100% like for us social has always been a very big part of um, of the brand of our our marketing processes and now more so than ever like okay again you have new social networks coming up like pretty much you've got like threads that came up recently you've got you know we don't even have tiktok in india but apparently you have tiktok as well and then you have so there's so many social networks there's so many opportunities for you to find clients wherever you want to now in fact also uh, just to kind of you know uh, go back to a point i was making earlier like even though when we started we you know there was not a lot of awareness about you know, online marketing as such, or copywriting or email marketing and all when we in India, but right now we do, there is, and that means that we are working with businesses here as well. So it just kind of, you know, you need to kind of keep a watch on the industry and which is what makes freelancing and entrepreneurship so interesting is because there's never, you know, no one year is the same year ever. Mm. Uh, no one quarter could be the same quarter. So, uh, yeah, uh, social media is a huge, huge tool for for freelancers in other countries. You just need to be very strategic and very smart about how you use it. And again, going back to the whole relationship point of view, you need to use it to build relationships. It's doesn't it doesn't it's not always transactional. If you just keep putting, you know, like just keep putting sales calls out, it's like being in a marketplace. You're not in a marketplace. You're on a social platform. So be social. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I saw something the other day in a podcast, which was basically pointing out that if you look at Red Bull's page, they've never made a single post about their product. Um, and it's more about, you know, like experiences and reaching out to their audiences. And I guess that's what we like we try and do on like, like our page as well, the 100k freelance club pages, we're just putting out information, just trying to help people just trying to show people like the lifestyle. And it's, it seems to be working. It's a good way um it's a good way to connect uh to, to connect with people yeah and, yeah and do you guys have a jump you mentioned that, that you, I, you know, I know you don't have tiktok uh in india there but like threads came out recently are you fast to adapt to like these new platforms that come out like are you always want to like jump straight on is that something that you recommend is to always explore the new possibilities or yeah we um most part, yes, for social and, for instance, even for AI, um, we weren't entirely on the AI train until December of 2022, which is when hmm. we, you know, started taking it seriously and investing in workshops and, you know, learning and courses and all of that. Um, but for social, yes, for the most part, we are pretty um, excited about jumping on to the new trends. Yes, we did jump on threads. We haven't continued with it because it didn't really catch on the way it was supposed to catch on but um but yeah uh, we enjoy testing mm. out newer trends um, yeah I, I think i think threads did die a horrible death i haven't seen many <laughs> many people many people using it but um i see yeah um well, I think that leads us on into a good opportunity to say, like, if people want to check you out, where can they go to find you? What are your social handles? Yes, so Instagram would be the best place to connect with us. We are Insta we are at Content Bistro on Instagram. That would be you would find a lot of like Jacob said, like our page has a lot of resources to help you get started with copywriting or building an intentionally profitable business. So that would be our social. But if you'd love to get on our email list, it would be great to have you there because that is where we share most of our copywriting tips and sales strategies and a lot of great content for you to build your freelancer business. And that would be at contentbistro.com backslash newsletter. 
Awesome. I'll put those links in the uh, in the podcast show notes as well. So if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever, you can just look below and click those links, uh, and you'll be able to go through uh, to the content uh, to the content bistro uh, social pages and that email list too. Uh, I want to say a massive thank you for uh, coming on to the podcast today. I mean, you, you've really helped me out with some of my questions, uh, and, and you know, learning from you. I, I hope uh, you've had a good time uh, here today as well, uh, recording. Thank you so much for having us, Jacob. We we had an absolute blast. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again, and uh, yeah, I wish you uh, all the best uh, in the future. It's great to connect from people with all over the world. It's so cool that you know I could be sat here uh, in a bedroom in England to speak to you guys all the way uh, over in India. That's uh, that is awesome. But yeah, I'll say uh, one last massive thank you for coming on. Thank you to all the listeners. Please do remember to subscribe uh, whatever platform you are listening on. And uh, yeah, you can check out um, all the links uh, in the uh, in the show notes. And we will catch you in the next episode of the 100K Freelancer Club podcast. Mm-hmm.